not love those words? Redeeming love has been my theme, and it shall be until I die. Love that. What an anthem for us to sing as we prepare our hearts for the bread of the spiritual bread of life, and as we get ready to partake of the Lord's table this morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4. We are progressing. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13 is our text for this morning. We have been looking at the birth narrative of Jesus. Then in chapter 3, we got to the preparation stage of his ministry. And now we are coming into the very beginning. Jesus is on the scene and his ministry is about to begin. But there is one thing that must take place. A very important and wildly, widely known event of his life. It is the wilderness test, the wilderness temptations. As he is preparing for his ministry, he has this one thing that he must do. He must be tested. He must for 40 days go into the wilderness and endure the temptations of Satan himself. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to go ahead and jump into the reading of the text. So hopefully you're there. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and then we'll have a little introduction, and then I'll, we'll, we'll start diving in. But I want you to see this before we go any further. Look with me in verse 1. We read, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when, he had in, when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And so he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written that you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then then he led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and he said to him, It is said that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until the opportune time. May God bless the reading and the teaching of his word this morning. Notice here, as we begin the wilderness temptation, those words that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. We've seen this hymn and the Holy Spirit already in his baptism, and so... As I've said before, this can be kind of confusing because we know that from the conception, from the moment that Christ enters into time, that the Spirit is with Him. He, the Father, and the Spirit are in perfect union. And so there's never a time that the Spirit was not. But this is an important phrase that we find in Scriptures, especially an important phrase that is used for Dr. Luke, or that he uses. He uses it more than any other gospel, and he uses it a lot in his book, Acts. It indicates a person who operates in and directed by the Spirit of God. Another way you could say it is, is that 
Jesus is fully under the control of the Spirit. Though Jesus has been in full union with the Spirit since conception and all the, and the Father, we wonder, well, what is this really about? And if you remember, for, for those of you who may have been here a few weeks ago, that at his baptism, when the Spirit comes down visibly and anoints him, it was not that the Spirit had not been with him, but it was an indicator that his supernatural ministry was beginning. That everything from that moment on, from the baptism till the end, to the resurrection, the ascension, all of that is done in his, supernat- in his supernatural or, or the divine power of the Spirit, not in the natural power. Remember, Christ is also, he is God, but he is also man. And so he set aside that, that, design, that divine power, and he's become like us, so he is relying on the Holy Spirit for his ministry. But not only his ministry, but even for the wilderness test. What we find is, is that in his humanity, Jesus lives as you and I should live, in complete reliance on the Spirit of God. And so when we come to the wilderness temptation, what we find here is the, the big idea that we're going to see in this text is that Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, overcomes Satan's temptations, validating him as the perfect Son of God and demonstrates before all of us here today that we need to rely fully on the Spirit of God in our own temptations. And so what I want to do this morning is, is in how we approach this text and how we examine this text, is what I want to do is I want to, I want to break it up in, into two, two Sundays. I want to spend our time today as an overview of the text. Kind of, get a, kind of put everything in context and just get a kind of a, a big view of it. And the next week we're going to zoom in and then we're going to begin to look at these temptations individually. And I think by doing this that we'll be able to squeeze all the good out we can in this. And I think, I think you will enjoy that. And so today I want to do an overview. And I want to examine three things this morning that we find within the first two verses. I want you to see this morning the setting, the adversary, and then the outcome. I want you to see the setting, the adversary, and then the outcome. Or even maybe even the, the victory. The setting, the adversary, and the outcome. And so if you will, let's begin this morning with the setting. Look at verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit, notice this, in the wilderness. The wilderness is our setting. This is an area between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, between Jerusalem and, and the Jordan River. And so the Jordan River runs in the Dead Sea, and so there's this there's this desert, there's this wilderness, and so when we think of, when it says wilderness, it's, it's our desert is what it is. There's nothing there. And matter of fact, the name of the place in which they, Jesus goes is, was called Jeshimon, which meant devastation. Now, I can personally attest this morning, I can personally testify this morning that that is a good name, Devastation. Because we were in that area, maybe not in the exact location, but we were in the wilderness about two and a half years ago when we went into Israel. When we took our trip there, and so we went into the wilderness. I remember them putting on this big, I think it was like a six-wheel vehicle, Randy or something, and they, they're driving us up through there, and my heart's pounding because I'm thinking, I'm never going to come home again. And we were going into the very desert where Jesus met Satan, and I was hoping that he wasn't still there. And so we're going into the wilderness and there are no pine trees. Because this boy came from Kasachi National Forest. And that is a wilderness, in my opinion. 
but there is nothing there. And so we go in, and it's nothing but dirt, but more than just dirt, there is rocks. As far as the eye can see, there the, you, can, you see these ravines that go down, and then you see these big hills that come up. And I, I mean, this is not a place that you want to play tag in, because you could fall, and, and these rocks are jagged, and they would cut. And it was a horrible place with, with no life except for the things that you wish would die, such as scorpions, spiders, and snakes. Those are the types of things that live in that place. And so we're going into this place, and the whole time I'm thinking that, that you know, this is miserable. But there is a purpose in the location, in the setting here this morning. A couple things you need to know that Jesus had to face these temptations and his foe alone. No one would have been with him. This was a battle that he himself had to deal, had to fight. Not only that, we know that the environment would have challenged him and weakened him. We're going to really look at that next week. He would have been, he would have been weakened severely. And so what we find is, is that in his, in his victory in the wilderness is that the weakness of Christ is, great, is greater than our greatest strength. But I think thirdly and most importantly, the wilderness has spiritual significance. You see, this is the opposite of the Garden of Eden. For those of you who were with us last week in the genealogy, you remember that the genealogy of Jesus ended with the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus is the second Adam. And he comes to do battle with Satan and succeed where the first Adam fell. But unlike Adam, who was perfect in, in, or placed in a perfect environment, Jesus, who is perfect, is placed in an imperfect, lifeless environment. Where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus now will go and do battle in the desert. And so what we find here is, is that this is a horrible place that is the very opposite of what we know and what we see when we begin Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But if you are a student of the Word, you also know that Israel wandered the desert for 40 years. And why did they wander the desert for 40 years? Because they sinned. And for because of their sin against God, they had to wander in this desolate place of devastation. Beloved, the wilderness is significant to us because it is a symbol of Adam's sin. It is a symbol of Israel's sin. It is a symbol of our own sin. The wilderness is a picture of the devastation that our sin brings, not only to our life, but into this world a horrible place, an environment that has no life. It offers no help. It offers only pain and suffering and hunger and loneliness, death. It offers nothing but hopelessness. This is not a place that you want to be. But sadly, because of the sin of Adam and because of the sin of humanity, this is what we've been given. And so now if we, let me ask you this question. Does this describe you at times? Does this, does this place of devastation, this barren wasteland, does it sometimes not describe your life? According to Ephesians chapter 2, that you and I are dead in our trespasses and our sins before Jesus comes to save us. That without Christ, your soul and your heart is barren. Your life is a place of devastation because of sin. Maybe this morning you're an individual who can testify of that. 
Just as I testified to the barrenness of the wilderness when I went there, maybe you can testify to the own barrenness of your own life. I know that I can. Before Christ, I can testify to you this morning of the hopelessness that I had. I can testify to you of the devastation of my sin that it brought to my life and to those who love me and those around me. I can testify to you that before Jesus Christ, I was hopeless and lost and hungry in pain and in suffering. And some of you, when you look at your life, when you truly examine yourself and you examine your spiritual life, when you begin to look deep inside of your heart and your soul, what you find is, is that you are a wilderness. You are living in a wilderness. You are barren and the sins of your life have left great devastation physically and spiritually. And the reason is, it's the same, it's the same reason that we always seem to find ourselves in the wilderness is because of sin. Beloved, I come to you this morning and I say that if that is you, let me offer to you a message of hope. Jesus goes into the wilderness that he may overcome the wilderness. Again, if you were to go back to the Old Testament where the Israelites are wandering around for 40 years in the wilderness, their only way of survival was that the God of heaven would provide bread and water, manna that would appear every morning and water that would come from a rock. Well, dear friends, I'm here to tell you this morning that the bread of life and the water that quenches all of our thirst, the water of life, enters into the wilderness that he may overcome Satan and sin, that he may turn the wilderness into a paradise. What we find is, is that Jesus Christ goes into the place of devastation and destruction. He is confronted with sin like you are confronted with and like Israel was confronted with and like Adam was confronted with and where we all fail and we all sin against God, Jesus never sins. And not only does he not sin in the wilderness, but he never sins after the wilderness, before the wilderness. And he carries this perfection. He is perfect all the way to the cross of Calvary where he willingly lays his life down as a sacrifice on our behalf, rising from the grave three days later, that you and I, who are barren, who are spiritually devastated, that we may find paradise. Maybe this morning you are hopelessly lost, spiritually dead, dry. Dear friend, I come to you this morning and I tell you that Jesus Christ is your bread of life. He is your water of life. And that in his victory, you can find salvation this morning. That all you would need to do is instead of grumbling and griping and complaining and turning to the, to the word of Satan and turning to the word of that you would turn to the word of God and see that it calls you to confess your sins and believe upon Jesus Christ that you may find salvation. I would call you this morning, confess Repent, turn from a lifestyle of sinfulness, turn from the wilderness and pray and beg of Christ to come and be your life and your hope, to bring life where there is none. Or maybe this morning you are a believer, you are a Christian, but you are having a wilderness experience. Your marriage is in turmoil. Inflation has devastated your bank account and so you find yourself in turmoil at your house or maybe you have a physical illness that seems to be nipping at your heels that's left you fearful and scared and it will not leave you alone and maybe 
Or maybe you are just become apathetic, like we, like we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning. You have no zeal for Christ. You have no zeal for His church. You have no zeal for the responsibilities that God has placed upon your life and your household. Or maybe you just cannot control your sinful urges. Let me be the first to tell you today that the wilderness is no excuse for your sin. Because that is the temptation. Jesus, you're hungry. Eat. Jesus, you're, you're weak. Just throw yourself off here. Call for the angels and they'll come. You see, the, the wilderness tempts us to sin. And so your marriage may be in turmoil, but I'm here to tell you it is no excuse for your divorce. It is no excuse for your affair or your viewing of pornography. Inflation and financial struggles have, are devastating your bank accounts, but dear friend, I'm here to tell you the wilderness will tempt you to lie, steal, cheat, and to deceive. But it is no excuse for that if you are a believer. No excuse at all, even as an unbeliever. Physical illness just keeps nipping at your heels and you are willing to throw your hands up and give up. You are fearful. You just want to quit being faithful. You just, you're just done. Maybe your temptation is apathy and so you say, well, I'll just quit coming to church. I'll quit being involved in this. I'll quit doing this. The wilderness is no place for you to give in to that temptation and forego the faithfulness to the not only to the bridegroom, Christ, but to the bride, the church. Maybe your, sinful, your sins are too strong for you this morning and you think, well, God is a God of grace, I'll just give in to them. You need to know that in these wilderness temptations, in these wilderness tests, dear friends, they do not give you an excuse to sin. Instead, they give you a reason to do exactly as Christ did, that when he went into the wilderness, he relied fully on, this holy, on the Holy Spirit. That he became, he placed himself under the control of the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, that is what you need to seek to do. Depend less on the circumstances of your marriage, less on the circumstances of your bank accounts and, your, and how you feel and your health and all these other things in life and become completely dependent this morning on the Spirit of God. Because that is where you'll find victory. That is where you'll find your joy. Not in these other things. What's amazing is, is we don't realize that in the wilderness, though it is a place of devastation, we can find true joy and peace and life under the control of the Spirit of God. And so here you are, we look at this and we say Jesus went into the wilderness alone. Well, he did physically, but he wasn't spiritually alone. And if you are in Christ, you are not alone, for the Spirit of God is in you. But you need only to become completely dependent upon Him and surrender control of your life that He may lead you and guide you and help you to overcome these temptations in your life. If you are a believer this morning, walking through the wilderness, my hope and prayer for you today would be to call out to Him. Cry out to Him and become submissive to Him that He may lead you and help you. But the wilderness was not the only thing that we find in this story, is it? There's a villain. There's an adversary, isn't there? And so we turn and we see here in verse 2, it says, for 40 days being tempted by the devil. So now the villain appears. And this is interesting. We know him as Lucifer, as Satan, the liar, the murderer, the deceiver, the great dragon, the serpent, 
Isn't it interesting, though, that in the Garden of Eden that he appeared to Eve as the serpent, the disguise of a serpent, but not with Jesus. You see, Jesus and him go way back. They know each other. But most importantly, Christ cannot be deceived by Satan. And so there in the garden, he may have came as a serpent, but here he appears to Christ. And in this moment, the Son of God stands before Satan in complete humiliation. He is not at the right hand of the Father, reigning in heaven. No, he is in flesh and blood. And not just any flesh and blood, he is weak, he is hungry. And so there in his devilish pride, Satan looks at this humiliated Savior and he believes he has the upper hand. Three times we are told of an assault, but you need to know this, is that he was tempted continually. That word, or that phrase, being tempted, it means in the, it's in the present tense, meaning continual. So for 40 days, Jesus Christ is being tempted. The three that we get is just the end where Jesus is at his weakest moment. Isn't this human? Is this this human nature that... That, that, that Jesus is constantly tempted because you think that maybe because he's the Son of God, he's just tempted three times. Oh no, dear friend, he is tempted every moment that he is in the flesh. And John MacArthur says it's far worse than your temptations. You see, we're like a balloon. Temptation comes and it builds and it builds and it builds and eventually we pop and we give in to the temptation. The pressure is relieved. But Christ never gave in. And so from the moment of his conception to the day that he dies, for 33 years, the temptation began to build and build and build. Never relenting, never giving up. Constant. What a human trait that we all share that he would identify with. Constant temptation. But it also lets us in on the adversary, doesn't it? 1 Peter 5.8 tells us to be, sober of, uh, to, be, to be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He never sleeps. He never rests. He's constantly seeking. He's constantly seeking to kill, steal, and destroy all that God deems it is good. And according to 2 Corinthians 11.14, Satan disguises him as an angel of light. He doesn't approach in a red Halloween costume with horns and tails and a pitchfork and a devilish grin. No, because if he came to you like that, you would have no problem resisting him. You'd run away. And you'd be like, I overcame the devil. No, the devil comes in subtle ways. He comes to us in ways that appeals to our flesh. Because you need to know he's not the only enemy you have. Matter of fact, many of us here have probably never felt the temptation of the devil because we're not able to overcome our own flesh and our own world. But what we find is, is that he does not come with big, great temptations, but little, small, subtle ones. There is a story that was told back in the Middle Ages of Martin of Tours. This is the saint of whom Martin Luther was named. It was said that Satan once appeared to St. Martin in the guise of the Savior himself as Jesus. St. Martin was ready to fall at his feet and worship him and, and just give all glory and honor to, to, to what he thought was Jesus. But before he did, as he was about to fall, he began to notice the palms of this individual's hands. There were no piercings, no scars, 
And so Martin Tour said, where are the nail prints? Whereupon, in that very moment, the apparition vanished. Now, I'm not sure if the story is true, but it does illustrate how Satan comes to all of us and tempts us. The actions of Satan come that they, in little, small, subtle ways, they're trifling, they're, they're unimportant details, right? There's nothing, we're, we're, they're not that big of a deal, that little white lie. And sometimes they seem religious. Sometimes when he tempts you, you think it is the religious and moral thing to do. It is the right thing to do. But be sure that these little acts are nothing short of rebellion against God. And so therefore, dear friend, you must be alert. Always alert. Never spiritually sleeping. Slumbering. Because the temptations are subtle, you need to be looking at all of the details. You need to be looking for the piercings on the hand that you may not fall to the traps of Satan. Because they happen unexpectedly. They happen quickly. The temptations are also very deceptive. As I said, they appear to be moral. They appear to be right. But they are nothing more than wickedness in the disguise of truth. Always be watchful, for he comes like a thief in the night. And it is sometimes too late before you feel the sting of his dagger. This requires that you know sin. Now notice what I said. You know your sin. We think we need to know our adversary. Well, we know that. The problem that we, that we do too many times is we're looking all the way out there, all the sin out there, but we never tend to focus on the sin in our own life, the temptations of our own life. And because we take the eye off the ball, we take the eye off ourselves. Satan knows how to tempt the flesh. This requires that you know your sin, that you know the, the moments, the things that trigger you, the things that make you vulnerable. The places you shouldn't go, the things you shouldn't watch, the people you shouldn't be around, how to handle the things that trigger the emotions of sadness and despair and anger. You are always prepared for the battle. But it also means that you must examine everything in life. You must consider everything that you hear and everything that you see Everything that you feel and everything that you think, because it really may be a temptation leading you to sin, though you think it, it, it looks good or you think it's right or you think it feels good. Do not forget, and we'll see this next week, that Satan likes to use the very word of God against us. He did it with Eve, and he did it with Jesus. And don't think that he won't do it to you. Do we not hear justice, justice, justice? And yet what we find is that their cry for justice in this world is not true biblical justice. We see it today. We see it everywhere we look. And we see it even in ourselves. You must know the word of God that you may examine what you see, that you may examine what you feel, that you may examine what you think and what you hear to know whether it is good or bad. You cannot go just based on instinct. You must go to the Word of God. Oh, beloved, are you studying? Are you memorizing? 
Do you know the teachings of the Bible? FPC, do you know the confession of faith? Do you know your statement of faith at our church? It is these things that help us when the subtle temptations of Christ come to lure us away one inch at a time. The adversary, he's real. He's deceptive. Be alert. He's always examined. But I must now bring us to the outcome. Because the last thing I want you to see here is, is not that you must learn a scripture or know a prayer, say a prayer or, have a, or do a fast. A lot of times we come to this passage and what we read is, is that if I could just learn some scripture and I can pray well and I fast well, then I will overcome the devil. We notice there that in, throughout this whole chapter, and because of time I won't read everything, but we see that Jesus responds over and over again and he defeats Satan. He never falls in temptation. And verse 13 tells us that the devil had finished every temptation. He finished it in complete defeat and he leaves until another time, an opportune time that he may confront Jesus again. And what we should take from this passage is not that if I learn this verse and I do pray this prayer and I fast, then I too will defeat the devil. Let me just say this to you this morning, that you will never defeat the devil. You can bind him all day long. You don't have the power to do that. Because you and I fail to him with the little things. We do not defeat Satan. We do not defeat sin. And if you believe that, dear friend, you have lost the battle already. Instead, we have one who goes into the wilderness. We have one who goes face to face with the villain, the adversary. And he defeats him. For we are told in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it tells us that Christ had been tempted in every way as we, in which we are, yet without sin. The one who defeats the devil, the one who overcomes the wilderness, is not the sinner. It's not the one who has already failed. It's not the one who learns the memory verse. It's not the one who learns to pray just right. It's not the one who fasts for, for, for this many days and that many days and goes to church this many days. That is not the point of the story. The point of the story is, is that we have a Savior, we have the bread of life, who comes and he goes into the wilderness and there he never sins. At his weakest moments in the flesh, he never sins. And when he leaves the wilderness, he goes all the way to Calvary, never sinning. Not once in deed, not once in thought, not once in action. And he lays himself down on the altar of Calvary. And he rises from the tomb in all victory, in all power, in all honor as the victor, not only over Satan, but also the victor over the world. For he says, I came into the world and I overcame the world. Christ is not just a model for you. He is your champion. He is your deliverer. He is your bread and your water. When you are hungry and you are thirsty, when you are starving, when you are dead and barren, and you've got nothing to give, he is all of that in a bag of chips. He is all of that and more than you will ever know until you get to see him in heaven. So, so what this means is, is that when temptation comes, your best strategy is not 
to just model and be like Jesus. Your best strategy is to resist the devil by running to Jesus and getting behind Jesus and pointing at the devil and say, he's all yours. Your best strategy for your sin is to run to Jesus with your sin and hold it high and say, I cannot deal with this. I cannot win. Your strategy is to come completely under the full dependence of the Spirit of God because you need the Spirit fully. Isn't it interesting that the first thing Jesus does under the, after the anointing of the Spirit is not miracles. It's the overcoming of sin. But you and I, we think, well, I, I don't like this dependence. I don't like this submission. I'm strong. I got this. I can handle this. I don't need you. I don't need the church. I don't need anyone. I can do this. I'm a man. I got this. This is between me and God. I got it. All of that is indicating of your pride. You are trying to fight your sin with the natural power, the natural strength of man versus the power of the Holy Spirit. And dear friend, may I say to you, you're not only prideful, you are delusional. You need to be humble and you need to call out to Christ. You need to call out to your faith family and let us all call out to Christ that he may come and help you. And just in, in case you say, well, that sounds, Brother Ryan, that sounds really weak, and I don't want to be weak. Oh, beloved, it, we find here in this text that when Jesus is at his weakest moment physically and emotionally, he demonstrates the greatest supernatural power in all of the gospel, the defeat of Satan himself. When we are weak, we become strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Psalms 34, 17. That when the righteous cry out for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. You see, some of you are never going to get out of your wilderness you're never going to defeat sin. You're never going to find salvation. Because you are trying to do this in your own power. And you can never, ever defeat your own sin. And you will never defeat Satan. But there is one who has defeated them all. And so here is a good start for you this morning. Now if you're an unbeliever, I would say to wait. You need to wait on this. But for the believer this morning, you can start at the Lord's table. In just a second, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. It is a reminder of our salvation purchased by Jesus Christ. That when we come to the table, we are reminded that our greatest victory came not by our might. I did not earn this table. I did not earn the right to come to this table. It is a reminder that I come to this table based upon the power of God who saves me. My salvation was purchased by Christ and His power. Our salvation is not the work of natural strength and power, but divine power of God. 
And so a person who rightly participates in the Lord's Supper cannot do so in pride. They cannot do so in sin. Neither can you fight your battles and temptations. So the Lord's Supper is a wonderful reminder and a great start for the believer this morning to become weak. Just like Israel had to rely on God for their bread and just like we have to rely on Christ for our own spiritual bread, we come to the table knowing that this bread, that this juice, that that represents his blood came not by our own hands and sacrifice but by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of the seriousness of sin, that we do not take the Lord's Supper with unconfessed sin in our life. And so it pushes us to deal with sin, to recognize the struggle sin causes in our life and the need to repent of it. But it also helps us to recognize the life that comes out of death. For I was once hungry and lost in the wilderness, and now I have been fed. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, again, if you're an unbeliever, I would warn you of this, to not take this in judgment. And if you were a believer this morning, I would warn you not to take this with unconfessed sin. The Bible is very clear that if you do so, you will be under the judgment of God. And I would warn parents that if your child is not baptized in good standing, that you be careful of this. But if you are a visitor here this morning and you are in good standing with your church, we do practice open communion. But if you are a baptized believer in good standing with your church, then we do welcome you to the table. But you must be honest about your sin and about your life. And we must pray desperately for God to forgive and to give you victory over your sins and your temptation. And so in this time, we're going to enter into a moment of invitation, a moment of reflection. Before we come to the table, remembering that it was the sacrifice of the perfect Son of God who brings us our salvation but also it is the perfect sacrifice of the Son of God who brings us our sanctification and who holds us fast against not only our own sins and the world, but even against the great adversary, 